Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We're back from Thanksgiving weekend break with a terrific show. My first guest, Martin Gutierrez. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is exhibiting Martin Gutierrez's work in a focus show that spotlights Gutierrez's 2018 Indigenous Woman project. Indigenous Woman is a 146-page fashion magazine-style publication for which Gutierrez acted as editor, writer, advertising producer, model, photographer, and everything else. It sends up the traditional fashion magazine by expanding its brief to address white supremacy, to advance native cultures, and to investigate the fashion industry's construction of beauty. Gutierrez's work has been featured in solo exhibitions at the Mount Holyoke College Art Museum, the Boston University Art Galleries, the McNay Art Museum in San Antonio, and at the Contemporary Art Museum Raleigh. She has been featured in group exhibitions at the Venice Biennale, the New Museum, the Kunstmuseum Bonn, and more. In addition to the usual images of an artist's work we will have on manpodcast.com this week, be sure to take a look at the show page to see Gutierrez's video work. We'll have links to it on martin.tv and on Vimeo. On the second segment, Mari Carmen Ramirez on Beatriz Gonzalez, a retrospective at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. And before we get to this week's show, if you have a moment to give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever else you download the show, that sure helps a lot. Them algorithms are hungry. Martin Gutierrez, after the break. His art captured the zeitgeist of Impressionist-era society, fashion, and politics. So why isn't he as famous as Monet or Degas? See new scholarship revealed about 19th century art's best-kept secret in James Tiso, Fashion and Faith, on view now at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Navigate the winding path of Tiso's life as you explore the exhibition galleries, passing through his complicated friendship with Degas, a decade of expatriation in London, and a love affair with a tragic ending. Discover Tiso's spectacular world in James Tiso Fashion and Faith, on view now at the Legion of Honor Museum. Head to legionofhonor.org to plan your visit. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Beatriz Gonzalez, a retrospective, the first large-scale U.S. exhibition dedicated to the work of Colombian artist Beatriz Gonzalez. Based in Bogota, Gonzalez is not only an internationally celebrated artist, but also one of the few living representatives of the radical women generation from Latin America. In one of the most comprehensive displays of the artist's work to date, Beatriz Gonzalez, a retrospective, presents more than 100 works from the early 1960s through the present, works that embody the full scope of Gonzalez's oeuvre. On view through January 20th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Beatriz Gonzalez for more. Testing the very definition of portraiture, Sheldon Museum of Art explores nuances in the genre from the late 19th century to today. Person of Interest, on view from January 24th through July 5th, 2020, asks open-ended questions about self-fashioning, cultural memory, and performance of identity. In doing so, the exhibition prompts conversations about race and representation, institutional power, lived experience, and other relevant and timely issues. Person of Interest features works by artists ranging from John Singer Sargent, Robert Henri, and Marisol, to Radcliffe Bailey, Nathaniel Mary Quinn, and Renee Stout. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Martine Gutierrez, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. Let's start with your interest in fashion. Fashion in one form or another is present in almost all your work. 
do you remember when you first became interested in the fashion world, the fashion industry, fashion as a, a thing in place? I feel like my interest in fashion parallels my interest in lovers. Like once they noticed me, I lost all interest. <laughs> I wanted so badly to be a supermodel. I really aspired to, I don't know. I thought that that would validate me, you know, being, being seen as perfect or idealized. And I think it was probably in my, like in the bathroom or something, like flipping through Vogue, something like something extremely boring and like the deja vu of every kind of little gay movie looking through Vogue, dreaming to be a supermodel on the runway. And I, I think honestly it paralleled that kind of glamour was in fairy tales or I, I linked it to that kind of storytelling. My favorite editorials were always ones that used mythology or referenced some kind of children's fairy tale like Alice in Wonderland or which a lot of pop stars took from too. And I think that was just the outlet into most kind of mainstream t- storytelling. Look at Gwen Stefani. She totally used the Alice, Alice Wonderland narrative for her like first solo album after No Doubt. I feel like I'm just going to go down a rabbit hole of like weird references if you don't stop me. <laughs> well, Tom Petty too. I mean, it, you know, not just, not just, you know, recent female pop stars, but older male pop stars. I mean, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. Was there a process in school or in grad school where you took something that had been an interest fashion and thought, oh, I can make work about this or I can make this core and fundamental to my work? No, I, I think it was more kind of a, the idea of my, of a personal inception. How, how can I, how can I break into this? or make something that is believable as an advertisement, as um, a campaign. And it didn't cross my mind that I wasn't selling anything. Because to me, in those ads that I was so drawn to, I wasn't even looking at the product. I was looking at the girl. Either I wanted to be her or I wanted to be with her. Like there was no, it was like a blurry line And I don't think it was until Indigenous women making like fake advertisements or something that could pass as an advertisement that I realized, oh, I can I can put forward my own narrative or I can even put forward a narrative to ask people to think about this differently or think in general. Indigenous woman is a really big idea presented in in magazine form. You wrote it. You're the editor of it. You're the model depicted in it. You designed it. Yada, yada, yada. Why uh, was the magazine, I don't know, is a magazine a medium? We're going to pretend a magazine is a medium. Why is why was the magazine as medium a- attractive as the basis for, for making, and ma- making an object, making a thing? Because I had never done it before. I had made music videos. I had made posters. I had made, I guess, prints, like traditional, like um, silk screens or intaglio etchings because I, I my major was printmaking in college 
and I don't know. So like the tactility of like paper and something physical is like, makes me super horny. Like the idea that you can touch something and that that has a weight and that that has a texture. And I think one of my least favorite things about photography is that it's so precious and it's usually behind glass and it's kind of assumed to be on a wall and all those assumptions make it a little boring as a medium. Like you don't, you can't dance with it. You don't really live with it. It's like a a sterile marriage (laughs) in which you're just kind of adjacent. (laughs) So um, a magazine was a challenge, but also exciting as a, a platform in which I didn't have to be there and I didn't need a gallery and I didn't need a museum. And that audience just is like boundless, right? Anyone can flip through a magazine. We think often of magazines as being driven by an editor, think Anna Wintour at Vogue. But of course, there's lots of stuff in Vogue that has nothing to do with Anna Wintour. You know, the advertisements, Anna Wintour is not in every picture, etc. Indigenous Woman is is a project in which you're the auteur or the auteur. I never know how to say that word. You know, it's 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 kind of applying uh, something that we more commonly think of as existing in cinema to the magazine form. Were you interested in auteurhood? Absolutely. I think the best stories are our own. I actually find it impossible to tell any story that's not mine. I think the challenge is how do you get people invested in your story, especially if you're an individual who is at the periphery of society or bigotry or whatever. How do you get people to listen who otherwise wouldn't or to watch who otherwise might be afraid? Let's talk a little bit about not just indigenous woman as a site of self-portraiture, but but you're in a lot of your work going going way back. How did you decide that you, physically, personally, you, and not the metaphorical or, or, or signified you, uh, would be in the work? What do you mean? You could have referred to your interests or fashion or ballet or whatever in the work, but you, made, you make sure you, that you are physically in it a lot. And, and you have been for a lot of years. So at some point, I'm guessing, you, you, you decided that you wanted to be super present in almost all of it. I mean, I think the funniest thing is that for an audience, they don't know that. At least they didn't used to know that. Before Venice, maybe. Maybe they still won't. Transformation is so important to me that I can be unseen, even as the star in my own work that I can be someone else and that that someone else might be someone that you recognize or empathize with much more easily than me, the individual. I think a, hu- I think a huge part of how it started was that same little make me a supermodel like mentality. I wanted to be a star. I wanted to be the in in the limelight and 
no one saw it for me <laughs> except me. So I I made myself into one. I had a lot of support, obviously, from like my mother, friends, but it was always like my demands for a project, a collaboration, a production, whatever you want to call it. I was demanding even as a child. So <laughs> asking asking people for their time and their patience, it made me feel guilty. I think that was a huge part of why it was mostly just me. And if not just me, mannequins, they don't have lives to get back to. They're, they don't have insecurities. Do you think about the work as self-portraiture? Any of the work? I think I have to. I was like in high school turning the camera on myself for like little little projects, learned how to use a timer, learned how to use a tripod. And then in college, the word selfie happened. And then I was like, ew, am I just taking like glorified selfies? In which case I need to stop because <laughs> I have no interest in that. And then maybe that was also like my my inclination to start adding co-stars. <laughs> it's no longer about the individual, it's about everyone, right? Like you you are now you have an opposition and whether you look just like them or you look very different, that's that's a narrative. You have built in a whole class system and you're you're talking about politics now. Are there any particular self-portraits or self-portraiture projects in art or art history that you find yourself thinking about? I I think the place we're at now, especially the place we're at when Indigenous women came out, I was, as an individual, at a crosshairs of, of interests and news. You know, we were talking about the borders we were talking about the presidency. We were talking about trans rights. And I just happened to be an individual who can identify as Latina and can identify as trans and can identify as first generation. Although I don't think out in the world, those labels help me at all or help others understand who I am so it's just it's just funny that now I'm I'm looked to as an authority on on all of them <laughs> well you became a star I guess I got my wish we, you know we looked to celebrity as authority and you made yourself one so we talked about fashion a moment ago one of the things that recurs in a lot of your work are the garments of, of fashion, garments as cultural identifier. I have read about how some of your interest in clothing, garments, textiles, insert the word here, comes from your grandfather's and parents' collection of Mayan textiles. Am I getting that right? Yeah, it's my, it's almost like my whole entire family's collection. It was predominantly collected by my mother and my father while doing relief work in Guatemala, but they they were kind of building on textiles that are kind of, you know, more pedestrian, 
less ceremonial, less extravagant, because each ethnographic group weaves differently, right? So I think the inclination was to collect from everyone and to have this kind of diverse collection that represented the artistry of of the Mayan community and like elevate it beyond something seen as crafty or only seen in an airport gift shop. I and I, I think the intention was for all of it to go back to Guatemala and to be in maybe the textile museum in in Guatemala City. Uh, you mean your parent you mean your parents' collection? Yeah, I think and maybe that's still possible. There's no reason it's not possible. But it, it's like museum quality and it's archived very well. But everything fell apart when my parents got divorced. So it just like lives in a basement now. And I went through to kind of unfold and refold things, check for mildew and was kind of, I don't know, you know, when you get to unpack something that's been so long put away and it's all new again, it was like that. And it honestly, it's, I think it inspired every editorial within the magazine. It, cause there's so much and it's all so different. And after a while it starts to look the same because it's so, it is so colorful and elaborate, but wanting, wanting each piece to really feel kind of celebrated or, or documented before it goes back in the basement or like to a museum or wherever it goes next. It's not really mine. Just to back and fill a little bit, your father is Guatemalan and your father's mother is, is Mayan. So we've talked a little bit about how your, your work addresses the luxury fashion world and, and its garments. And we've talked about how you have uh, an interest rooted in your family history in Guatemalan and Mayan textile traditions. As you think about using garments in your work, does it matter to you uh, whether you're using, you know, something from Gucci or something from Guatemala, or are you approaching garments just as garments, as, as, as something to glam up and fashionize? Oh, I think it... I think it totally matters. Gucci has everything to do with status, just like Versace or Chanel or Dolce & Gabbana. They, they, it's all, it's all about the symbolism of what this brand does to the individual who wears it because of literally, literally a symbol, <laughs> literally a logo that's like stamped on something. There's something so ritualistic about that to think to think of a symbol giving someone power or to think that a person thinks a symbol can give them power it's it's very witchy except for like a witchcraft rooted in commerce <laughs> and i think the idea that i could use something that's looked as to i don't know looked down on or looked Maybe it's not looked down on, but categorized as a craft with the intention to make a couture or in the light or replacement of that handbag or of that, you know, new coat, new Burberry coat. No, it's a weepy lay. And it was woven by, you know, this woman 
I wish I could have had the women who made the clothes in the magazine. I think that would have been, that would have been better. It would have been amazing. I'll probably never meet most of them. I think most of those textiles were probably woven in the seventies. And I remember my mom telling me a story of like, before she was pregnant with me and they were leaving Guatemala that this woman pleaded with her to take her children back to the United States. I mean, she was saying adopt them basically, but just for them to have a chance at the American dream. And um, she told me that story a few times. Like she felt like she should have done it, but she was just like a, in grad school, you know? And then once she had me and we went back, I think I was like one, I had, was like, I had one of like the youngest passports in our family. Cause I went back with everyone as a baby and they were on the plane and the stewardess congratulated my mom for adopting a Guatemalan baby. <laughs> oh my gosh. She'll probably hate that. I'm telling the story. And she was so pissed. She was like, she was breastfeeding me, but she was like, this is my child. But my mom has like blue eyes and like fair skin. We don't look alike at all. And that's, I think her, her background has in many ways helped my understanding of the dichotomy of privilege. So that, that's, that's interesting. Was that a, a convenient material to use because it was at hand or was there a a broader purposeful conceptual laying of personal regional geographic and cultural histories that appealed to you i think it was a mixture of of both obviously as an artist you have to work with what you have and it it became just another avenue of costume in in the sense of play and I don't think until I was shooting it and there were very traditional women's looks and traditional men's as well, which I wear the traditional way and then kind of juxtapose with a kind of Martine way, <laughs> a reinterpretation, whether it's like a blouse as a skirt or a bunch of shirts as a dress or, you know, everything as a headdress. I feel like it became obvious that this was a greater work and that maybe this is one editorial of many, in which case, if we're building on it in the language of a magazine, the rest have to look different. It has to look like a new photographer and a new model and all of those aesthetics have to change. And it becomes a little less about what I'm drawn to innately and more so, I don't know how to grab, how to grab at, the the language of glamour or it was so weird to think what makes a successful fashion image as someone who experienced kind of runway firsthand or like being in an editorial firsthand without all that control like I think right when I moved to New York I pursued modeling I was in a band I thought that would work it didn't <laughs> And then I ended up doing a bunch of like modeling gigs for money. And it was so the opposite of glamorous. Like I felt like cattle. I felt like, 
on top of that, I was dealing, wrestling with dysphoria. And so most of the clothes they're putting me in were clothes I did not want to wear or that I felt like didn't represent how I saw myself. And you just have to pretend like you like it and sell it because it's an industry. But to have no control over how you look and then to be told what to do and to be expected to do that, it was it made me so uncomfortable. On top of the fact that like I had ideas. <laughs> I had ideas for what I thought would look better, whether it was the set or how the photograph was composed or the lighting or what I, sh- what I should be wearing, what the best look was. And no one wanted those ideas. I thought they were all very good ideas. But <laughs> no one cared. So, yeah, I don't know. That lack of control and that lack of authorship, I, I just felt totally objectified. And I saw that I was used to assume allyship and to make something, you know, more POC, more diverse. And, of course, by... by- uh, running everything as an artist, you get you get to determine every every last detail, which I uh, imagine is a lot of fun. One of the the details that is most present across almost all of your work, you've you've worked in black and white a bit, is how you use color. Your color is L O U D color. It is very big. It is very bright. It is uh, it takes up a lot of space. It is very insistent. What about turning the volume of color up to maximum uh, matters to you, is appealing to you? I feel like everything you just said is actually just an opinion. Like, I don't know if that's true. (laughs) This is your perception. Um, (laughs) I think to me, it's not loud enough. (laughs) Like, I still am struggling to really capture it. I feel like every new... Every new series is really an opportunity to do it better, whether that's, I don't know, create something more vibrant. I guess I look to the color wheel quite often. I'm always referencing the color wheel, color theory. Color theory is one of my favorite classes. Just the idea that two, two, thing, two hues together can pulse or can cause your eyes to strain it's science it fascinates me so i think i use that i don't want to give away too many of my secrets but i think once you really start looking you'll see i i really gravitate towards like complementary colors so then why in martine part one through nine are you so often in a white dress white is classic i think i as martine just the girl (laughs) i'm always in a white dress it's like my it's like my my center. I, I just think it's so chic and timeless. I don't know. Like you can I think my biggest aspiration is to look like someone who could walk through any time zone or any culture kind of anonymously, which is why I probably haven't dyed my hair yet since high school and why I don't have any tattoos. And why I still kind of wrestle with the two piercings that I have, but they're just on my ears. I could have probably not had them. I have more costume options with pierced ears. (laughs) Yeah, permanence. I feel like there's something, 
I guess a black dress is also is also timeless and kind of anonymous in that same way, but it's riddled with eroticism in a way that a white dress isn't. Like I just think of cotton and I think of something that could be in the Nile or I don't know, in every culture, linen even. So speaking of, of colors, are there associations or references that you want the viewer to think of when seeing particular colors in your work? So I'm thinking of like, you know, one of the real dolls pictures, there's a lot of yellow, a lot of bright rain slicker yellow or in, in or, or the use of red in, say, Red Woman 91. Um, I think there's certain kind of like predetermined codes that I assume are there regardless like obvious ones right like the gendering of blue versus pink i think that's been like the funniest thing i'm in that generation now of all my friends having babies getting married and everyone wants to give their because now everyone understands your gen your baby has a sex and then they get to pick their gender and so do you want to gender your child for them or make it as, you know, positively open as possible, which means choosing the other colors, right? The gender neutral colors, which I think are funny to have in a category as well. Yellow, green, red. I was going to say those gender neutral air quotes colors pop up in your work a lot. That's so funny. I guess they're, yeah, they have to be there. They have to be there. There's no way they will they won't be there. I'm hoping it's it never feels so silly as to say all these women are in pink. This must be a, a girl image. <laughs> it's interesting about the idea of timelessness because I wanted to ask you a, a kind of a couple things about sites or elements of both Martine part one through nine, but also some of the other video work. Martine part one through nine has a rich interest in the neoclassical. A lot of the sites at which you shoot are neoclassical building with, you know, white stone and colonnades and, you know, all that good stuff. My, my question was going to be, what's your interest in the neoclassical? But I think I have a hunch as to what the answer is. <laughs> Timeless. <laughs> Or like ancient. It's so funny. That series was started in Providence, in Rhode Island, where I went to school. And it started as this kind of freeform video project. It was like an independent study that I had written for myself. I wrote a few independent studies in college just because prompts, for the most part, were pretty uninteresting. And I really wanted to be making my own work but I still wanted to graduate <laughs> and I needed credit to do that. And yeah, so I, I wrote some curriculum to gain credits in. <laughs> so sneaky. And one of them was, I guess that series, uh, but it was only three videos at that time. And I graduated with only three videos and I, I visited most of that was the Capitol building in Providence it looks unbelievably beautiful in the in the in the video. I mean, it just looks like it's been there forever and will be. Ah, thank you. I love that. I, I I wanted to look like I was abroad. 
because I really felt like I was in Europe when I was there. It felt like some kind of escape. And 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 the neoclassical has recurred repeatedly, almost reliably, every century or so since since the classical period. So there is a timelessness to it and a placelessness to it. And I feel like there's like a cyclical nature in everything that is timeless because everything is referential every, like, and will continue to be. We, as much as we all want to be original, I don't know, some kind of pioneer, it, it's impossible. It's impossible to make something without the reference of something else. Another mode of presentation from the past, if you will, that recurs in uh, a good bit of your work is salon-style hangs of art in gilded frames in grand rooms, uh, which is something that has come in and out of fashion over over several hundreds of years. What is the attraction of uh, using galleries such as that or presentations of art such as that uh, in your work? I guess I'm just not original. <laughs> I don't know. Something that's gaudy is just so appealing ever so often because there's no need for it. <laughs> it's so completely frivolous. But I, I think I only do that when the work calls for it. I try to hold myself back from too much cream, you know, otherwise it's it's hard to taste anything, to see anything without being overwhelmed. Uh, another another place that recurs in a lot of your work is bathtubs. Uh, there's a moment in Martine Part 1 through 9 where you're immersed in water, for example, in a tub. There's a long, long, long art history of water as a site of rebirth, as a site of baptism, as a site of self-baptism. Were you interested in any of that history as you as you put yourself in that place? I guess so. I was baptized. I don't know if I'm an atheist. I think that series, the part one, probably through like seven is is kind of wrestling with that question too. And I, I have a huge fear that there's nothing out there. Like, what do you... Like, can science and something mystical both exist simultaneously? Of course. But then, I guess I always realize I use religion when I'm completely terrified. It's like kind of in the face of mortality, whether it's like a loved one or let's say it's like an accident, something dangerous, or maybe it's like you really want something so bad and you kind of, you ask for it. And I'm like, that's the question. Like, who am I asking? Like, who am I pleading with? Because it's obviously some someone outside of myself. It constantly is. And I grew up being brought to church. But I never felt it, like, kind of reciting, for all intents and purposes, incantations from books, hymns, you know? And I'm like, whether we're going to call it something organized or some kind of witchcraft or some kind of whatever... There's always there's always some like greater thing outside of ourselves. And like, what does that look like? What is the shape of it? I don't know. How, like, how does it help anyone to give it a name or to give it power that says that you're not in control? And I think it's probably all connected to my own psychology and my own inability and 
practice to try and surrender and be vulnerable and be human. I feel like how I was raised or how I came to be this person has so much to do with with control and governing it. One more kind of martine.tv specific-ish question. According to Lena Raleigh in a piece for New York Magazine, I think it was for their The Cut website, it was when working on a video project, I don't know if it was martine.tv, the website as a whole, or, or, or a specific work, that you added the E to the end of, of your first name. Same pronunciation, different spelling. Ooh, you caught that, huh? <laughs> yeah. What, I guess first, what were you working on? Was it a specific piece or, or the website when that happened and, and when you decided to do that? And then secondly, what about working on whatever that was motivated the addition of the E? I feel like when most trans women decide to go buy a new name or they have a dead name. It's not like documented <laughs> in history, <laughs> but I just happened to um, start my transition when I was already like a burdening public figure. And yeah, the, the E having the E in parentheses was kind of, I guess, a public question, isn't it like, isn't it funny? Like this name is, everything about it changes with just this one letter. And yet the pronunciation for all intents and purposes is the same. Cause I grew up Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, accent over the I, it's a very traditional masculine Spanish male name named after my grandfather's father one of the few cousins who was. And so it was like a big deal. <laughs> the, but like moving to the States or like traveling back and forth, it was never um, a name people could pronounce. And I never grew up as Martin, even though on paper, that's how it was spelled. The only Martin I knew was Martin Luther King. And I was like, oh, like, He's like, he's major, but that's not my name. <laughs> it was probably like, I couldn't even really say it, especially in school. And it became just Martine, like this long, like, like long E. Um, and I remember like new teachers doing attendance in class. And I had like a gaggle of, you know, my girl posse around me. And they'd be like, Martin. And everyone kind of like look around, like, who is that? And then the whole posse of girls, after they say Martin again, would be like, it's Martine. And I'd be like, yeah, it's Martine. Like, it was kind of like, duh. <laughs> and I grew up as Martine and didn't think about it. And I didn't think about how like, my name happened to be one that was very ambiguous and fluid in that way. I didn't think of the gender of my name. And at that point, I was... Finally, I probably convinced my mom that a rat tail wasn't enough, a mullet wasn't enough, and I needed long hair. Well, yeah, I was, is there, was there uh, a specific piece that motivated you or, or during which you decided to add the E? Yeah, I felt like that series, it was that Martine series, because at that point... The part one through nine series. I was still, I was still in college, 
with spelling it just accent over the I. And I saw this character as kind of being kind of my my freedom to exist more fully as a duality and a little French. So she needed the E. And I liked that it paralleled my own, that line of, is it real? I think that question haunts everything I make. Is it real? You know, maybe it's inevitable in a, in a project like Indigenous Women, which is a magazine which includes everything that a magazine includes, like advertisements. But that a lot, of, but a lot of your work over quite a number of years now has engaged the idea of brands and brand identity and how brands present themselves. So there's, of course, uh, Martin, your, your Martin Jeans uh, billboard, if that's the right word, project in which uh, the, 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 the visual continuation of that, you know, we, 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 you're, you're the photography that shows us what Martine Jeans was is surrounded by ads for TV shows or McDonald's or whatever. Within the magazine, there are ads for products such as, air quote products, such as Whitewash, W-H-I-T-E-W-S-H, and Dell Estrogen. What got you interested in examining or tweaking or including yourself within brand identity? I, well, we've already talked about celebrity. But celebrities are people, right? And brands are specifically not. But these people are brands because without them, they don't have an identity that's public. It's so weird. Like, if you think about, I don't know, like a guest girl, you get like at least for me, an image of what that girl looks like. There's like, or a cover girl. There's like a, you know, she's like the sweet girl with a wink. I feel like that's how they used to like talk about her. There's like personalities that brands like to align themselves with. How like Chanel now only uses actresses for campaigns. Like I think it's been Natalie Portman for a while. Oh God, I like don't know well enough the other, like I know Charlotte, Charlize Theron was the, um, the one with like the big gold choker that always made her look like the bottle. I, I think what you're saying is that you're interested in where the language of advertising meets the language of celebrity. I think that they're like totally entangled. I don't think a clear meeting, like a celebrity uses that platform to elevate themselves just as the brand uses the celebrity. It's just this, it's like some kind of ecosystem of money. <laughs> this is a rough jump, but I kind of skipped over mannequins earlier and I wanted to talk about mannequins for a second. You have possessed, owned mannequins since you were in high school. Um, I think your first mannequin was a gift from your mother. What about mannequins interested you as a teenager and has the interest changed? It, this is all true. My my first mannequin was a gift from my mother. I was obsessed with her. I had wanted one for a very long time and, and kind of a, a parallel to like a my size Barbie or something, which I was never allowed to have growing up. And I was also tall. I'm tall. So a my size Barbie was was too small. She was also blonde with blue eyes. And so mannequin was kind of upping the ante for some for something that was as big as me, 
that could wear my clothes. And I don't think I had any inclination that she would make it into anything I was making. Uh, I did not, we did not start off as collaborators. That, that was um, a gift. It just happened. That same kind of, you use the materials you have. She would become a stand-in in a film dressed in, you know, someone else's clothes that couldn't make it that day. And I needed them for the scene. And I think at first it was important to me that you couldn't discern that she was a mannequin. And then I started looking for them. I would seek them out because I felt like she needed a companion. I grew up with a, a lot of animals in the house too. And they were always so lonely if they didn't have another like them. So I would look in like old malls or kind of thrift stores that were going out of business online. And then I learned that there are many different kinds of mannequins and there are, you have your high end girls, which I would say are the Rootstein mannequins, which is a brand. And I would say most of my girls are Rootstein actually. They just, the articulation of like the faces and the hands are so beautiful. There's just, there's a kind of detail that isn't in, you know, the mannequins made in the eighties, I'd say that are kind of the more like mass produced kind of like, I don't want to say Ikea of mannequins, but they just, they do their job, you know, they can be elevated in the right, you know, See, you totally do want to say the Ikea of man mannequins. <laughs> I would say Rootstein are like, you know, the top. They're just gorgeous. They're gorgeous. And even their posture. That And for the mannequins I have that aren't Rootstein as well, it, it became kind of mandatory that posture was something that could tell a story. There's so much about gesture that has to do with looking alive like you look at a Barbie and it's so static, you know, and it's because there's no, there's no contrapposto. There's no bend in the hips, the knees. There's no distribution of, of weight in the way she stands, but just add like a cocked hip and a bent knee. And all of a sudden you have someone waiting or an arm that's extended. Now that is an opportunity for an embrace or to be handing something to someone, to be reaching for something. And so I started to look for mannequins to help tell just a, a richer story. So that meant how they looked, but also how they, how they stand. So that way the, the way they would interact, even without me in an image or someone that you saw as me, could be more compelling. Well, I was going to ask about that next. You think about them in your work as doppelgangers absolutely i'm very much convinced i have like a twin sibling that i'm not allowed to meet because we were just we would just change the world <laughs> and i i think it really was just me being introduced to parent trap too early on and i was like wow i can get my parents together too once i find my twin once they said this the same sleepaway camp and I was just convinced every time I was at my mother's house, she was at my father's and vice versa, when we would just always kind of miss each other. And I would blame, 
not being able to find certain toys, you know, ruining something that I didn't remember, you know, ripping or staining on my twin. And I think a huge part of that was also this, this longing to know someone that, that looked just like me um, or had, had my experience. Maybe it's, it's deeper than look, but is, that is me in so many regards. Uh, no twin really is their twin, but. You know, one of the things I find myself thinking about when I look at your use of mannequins and to a less extent, but maybe a teeny extent, the work that includes sex dolls is about the history of the use of dolls or doll-like forms in art. And probably the most famous such example in the last 120 years is the way the surrealists, Hans Bellmer, used dolls. And there's often one heck of a lot of violence in that that usage, especially in the surrealist usage. Were you conscious of or interested in kind of overthrowing that violence-driven use by using your life-size dolls in, you know, a 180-degree different way? I don't think it was an intention that inspired the act of any, like, initial making ever. I, I, I honestly don't think my intention is, is ever to be controversial, oddly, says, says the girl that makes sex doll work. I, like, I either don't see things as taboo, and maybe that's my own experience, it's so wild. Like the idea that even we started this interview and you told me like China, China's going to block us. <laughs> that startles me. It startles me because I'm, I just feel like a part of me is so vanilla, like so average. Like I could just get married and have missionary sex and have a dog. <laughs> And like, maybe like, and I mean, I don't know, maybe that's not normal, but it certainly is boring. I don't know. I feel like maybe I need to make more work that's like directly boring. Martin Gutierrez, thanks so much. Thank you. In Recording Artists, a new Getty podcast series, Art historian Helen Molesworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Alice Neal, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Yoko Ono, and Ava Hesse. In episode two, Molesworth is joined by artists Larry Pittman and Amy Silman, as Lee Krasner, a first-generation abstract expressionist, discusses her formation as a painter, her relationships with fellow artists, and more in interviews from the 1970s. Binge the entire series now at getty.edu slash recording artists. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. Now on view is Susan Phillips, Seven Tears. Turner Prize winning artist Susan Phillips is best known for her works that explore the potential of sound, often including her own untrained voice, to define space and its interaction with architecture. The exhibition includes a newly commissioned installation, Too Much I Once Lamented, created for the water court at the Pulitzer's Tato Ando Design Building. Other works, Poetic Meditations on Loss, Hope, and Longing, animate the museum's galleries and surrounding architecture, creating a constellation of singular, immersive environments. Susan Phillips' Seven Tears is on view through February 2nd, 2020. 
For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Beatriz Gonzalez, a retrospective at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. It's the first large-scale U.S. exhibition devoted to the Colombian artist's career. My guest, Mari Carmen Ramirez, curated the exhibition with the Perez Art Museum Miami's Tobias Ostrander. Gonzalez is one of the few living artists remaining from Latin America's radical women generation of artists. Her work often examines class, taste, dictatorship, extrajudicial killings, and more. The exhibition debuted in Miami, and is on view at the MFA Houston through January 20th, 2020. The fine exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for just $31. Mari Carmen Ramirez, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be with you again. You begin your essay in the exhibition catalog, which is absolutely terrific, by noting that for most of the last 50 years, there's been abundant question about how and whether artists should address war and atrocities using traditional strategies, such as painting or representation. And that for the most part, artists have rejected the traditional oil on canvas in favor of new forms of expression, such as performance or video and whatnot. Beatriz Gonzalez remained devoted to painting, even as she examined those very issues. Why did she cling to it and love it so much? I think it's somebody, you know, I think at the bottom of of artists who make those types of decisions lies the fact that they have a real vocation for painting. You know, they are uh, really intuitively and sensorially attracted to the medium. And so that's, you know, the medium is their, their first preference. She emerged at a time when artists were, I believe, uh, rejecting painting in favor of other unconventional media. But she was determined to find a way to make painting as a medium relevant again. And she was not uh, the only one doing that in Colombia or in Latin America. I think in Colombia in particular, there was an abstract movement in the 1950s. And uh, by the 1960s, the new generation of artists who declared themselves to be avant-garde uh, artists, they were very much, they, they saw painting that other people, you know, the medium that other people were rejecting, they saw it as a way to make a statement, to move forward. And not only painting, but also figurative painting, because uh, there were a lot of debates about, you know, abstraction versus figuration. And there were artists like Fernando Botero, who's her uh, contemporary. They're roughly the same age, and they came out uh, or emerged in Colombia roughly at the same time. Potato was uh, making a much even more radical statement because he was going back to the old masters like Velázquez and El Greco and other Italian uh, Renaissance masters. And he was appropriating them, he was assimilating them, and he was trying to make a statement that ran counter uh, to what was considered until then the avant-garde in Colombia, which was basically abstract art. So Beatriz's decision was... I think personal, as I said before, I think it, it, she had a, a strong vocation towards painting, but it was also framed in the context of all of these other debates in Latin America, which uh, may have been different from what else, you know, what was being discussed in the United States and in Europe, but led her to believe that betting on painting at that point could be a very radical and avant-garde statement. The earliest painting in the show is from 1962. Early on in her career, in the 60s and in the early 70s, Gonzalez's work punctures class and bourgeois taste, including with images of, say, Queen Elizabeth, which is, which is really quite a funny painting. 
what attracts her to those subjects and how does she, through what means does she address them? We begin with one of her uh, first uh, self-portraits done while she was a student, which already reveal her inclination to a very painterly approach to the medium and, you know, her, her delight, you know, in color. She uh, has confessed that she never really had an inclination to work from the natural. And, and the way that she discovers images is that her teacher once left town and gave him an assignment to produce a painting while he was away. And she tried to do a still life and she hated it. She thought it was a complete disaster. And she was desperate to uh, produce, you know, another work so she could uh, fulfill her assignment. And uh, she saw this small reproduction on the wall of the studio. It was a reproduction of Velázquez, uh, the rendition of Breda, which was a very important painting by the Spanish master. And it was just a detail of, of the painting. And she decided to copy it. And she enjoyed so much doing it. And it was so successful with her teacher and her students and everybody else that she realized that that was the way to go for her, that instead of painting from the natural, she had to paint from, from appropriated images. And so uh, she begins to appropriate first images of the, of the masters. She does an exhibition at that time of that first series in Bogota. And uh, everybody likes the work and they consider her very fine and refine and elegant painter. And she hated that uh, because she had in her, you know, somewhat of a, you know, she was already a rebel and she didn't want to be associated with women's Sunday painters, you know, which was apparently something that was very much of a custom uh, in Bogota for ladies of a certain social setting. And so uh, she began to look for ways, you know, to undo that, you know, that supposed refinement of her work. And she continued to draw from images, but then she turned to images from uh, from newspapers that had to do with uh, domestic violence. It had to do with all sorts of, you know, uh, violence perpetrated in the streets. She was interested in the stories, but more than the stories, she was interested in the flatness of the images and how they had been, you know, every time they were reproduced in the newspaper, you know, they became flatter and flatter. And there was a kind of granular quality to it that she was attracted to. And that eventually led her to an investigation of taste, because there was a very important printer in, in Cali, in Colombia, who was of Spanish descent and had established a very productive business. And he, they were doing all sorts of images uh, taken from mythology, taken from religion, and also from you know, national and, and popular heroes of Colombia. And Beatriz uh, was interested in the images. The images had a very kind of kitschy quality to them. She, she became fascinated, you know, by, with the question of, you know, why were people so interested in these images? You know, what is it about taste, you know, that was uh, so appealing to them? And how can you describe, you know, the construction of this, you know, popular taste? And how were these images, you know, received and recycled and, you know, became part of uh, people's everyday lives? You know, that was something that really fascinated her. So that's the origin of uh, her concern with images including images of the of the royalty of the British royalty I mean uh, she was really concerned with you know why are English royalty so important for Colombian people I mean they have nothing there's nothing in the history that would link them or there's nothing that relates 
and yet there was, you know, uh, people in the streets and in everyday life, you know, were completely fascinated by British royalty, and they would respond to the images, they would collect the images, and they knew everything that was happening with them. So, so that was the source of that interest. In your essay, you note that Gonzalez can sometimes, in her painting, be sarcastic, and and work from this period, I think, is a really good example of that. In about 1970 or so, Gonzalez leaves, at least for a time, traditional painting on canvas to often paint on domestic objects. Think tables, think a bed. Why? Well, that also happened as a, as a chance, sort of like a, a chance situation. When she accompanied her husband to a, her husband is a, a well-known architect, and he had to go visit some kind of factory. And outside of the factory, there was he who was selling these metal beds that are uh, very unusual because they are beds made of metal, but then they're painted to imitate wood. Uh, so they have a very vernacular aspect on one hand, also a very kitschy aspect to them. And Beatrice became fascinated by, by the bed and decided to buy it. When she, she didn't know exactly what she was going to do with it, but when she uh, got home, uh, she realized that she had just finished a painting of a Christ carrying the cross, on the floor carrying, carrying the cross. And uh, she realized that the painting was exactly the same size as the bed, which was not a very large bed. It was mostly a bed as for a child. And she, she put the painting in there and then realized that that, was, that had given rise to a different and more radical type of proposal, which was the fact that painting no longer had to be on a two-dimensional support, but it could be on, on an everyday object such as a bed. And critics, of course, celebrated that gesture. The Beatriz Gonzalez's furniture pieces were written and talked about in very successful terms. And that way she had given rise to, you know, to uh, a more radical proposal that was kind of an indictment on traditional painting. It was taking painting to another level, which is the level that she was more interested in working with. That's, that's how the furniture pieces come about. And then she continued to work with a factory that produced those, those types of furniture. But the only thing that they did were beds and night tables. And eventually she decided with her husband uh, to make her own pieces of furniture, such as tables and, and other pieces that would accommodate the different kind of objects that she wanted to do. In the late 70s and early 1980s, Gonzalez's attention turns toward Colombian and, and geopolitics. Let's, let's set up the event that suffuses her work from here forward. Uh, La Violencia... Uh, which has its roots in the late 1940s and which intensifies after the United States involves itself in Colombian affairs in the 1960s and then continues for over 50 years. What prompted Gonzalez to address La Violencia in her work? Well, La Violencia has been present in Colombian society since the 1940s. Colombia is a country that has been mired in a civil war and very violent, treacherous civil war since that time. And all the while in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, you know, La Violencia was in the background of everything that was happening. In the 1978, a new president comes into power. His name was Julio Cesar Turbay. And he is a president 
not unlike our own president right now, who was very much given to the media, who was very um, kind of over the top in terms of his celebration of the media. He, he loved to have media attention. Uh, he was also a very autocratic president. He was uh, responsible for introducing the Estatuto de Seguridad, uh, which was a law that repressed a lot of public expression. And as a result of which, intellectuals like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the, no- the Nobel uh, Prize winning uh, writer of Colombia, had to leave the country at that time. And there were many other intellectuals who had to leave. Uh, he ushered in Turbay, ushered in also the military. So uh, this became uh, the beginning of an even more critical period in Colombia's history. And Beatriz had always been devoted admirer of Goya and other artists like Goya. She decided to appoint herself as the court painter of Turbay. And so she would follow him or follow his his different activities to the newspapers and and reviews of the period. And she developed a whole series of works that had to do with Turbay. So that was the beginning of her, you might consider her politicization. She was still making furniture, she was still making some of her ironic pieces, but the tone begins to change. And then 1985 is the critical point of no return, because in 1985 there's a a tragic event that takes hold of uh, Colombia, and that has to do with the attack and the take of the Colombia Palace of, of Justice at a time when all of the Supreme Court in Colombia was in session. So a guerrilla group attacked and took hold of the palace, and they killed 11 of the Supreme Court justices. The government responded by launching a counterattack, which resulted in more than 90 military men killed, as well as numerous wounded. And as Beatrice describes it, you know, that was the the day when justice died or disappeared uh, in Colombia forever. And so the event really uh, marks a turning point in her work because she decides that, you know, it, she's, the way she describes it is also that, you know, kind of a, a veil was lifted. And for the first time, you know, she really saw uh, the crude reality of her country and uh, the crude situation in which her country was mired. And she decided that she could no longer go back to do the kind of playful, ironic a work she has been doing until then, playing with the icons of art history or with national heroes or the Graficas Molinari, that she really had to confront the situation head on and develop a way to represent it. That's really the turning point. The other thing that happens in 1985 is that her son is drafted into the army, which, which, which is, there's kind of a double whammy for her that year, both personally and, and, and more broadly. So one of the big changes in her work about this time is a change in her use of color, which had, had long been distinctive. It had, it had been bright, bordering on loud for some time. But now it, it changes. The colors she chooses to use and kind of the tonality, if that's the right word, of her painting changes. So the, prime example, the prime example is Los Papagayos or the, uh, the Macaos. It's a work that we have used to promote the exhibition. The Perez Art Museum used it, and we have used it too. And it uh, represents another president, the, the successor of Turbay, President Betancourt, who, in profile, surrounded by his generals, um, because the military had also, uh, during the time of Turbay, they had also come strongly back into power. 
And this shows Betancourt surrounded by the military, but they are rendered, their faces are red, a very, very bright red, and their uniforms are a bright green, you know, sort of like a Paris green. And the whole, and, and then there's some other, a few other colors, orange and yellow, but most of the work is rendered in those two colors. And so she is really denouncing the military power. She's also denouncing the empty rhetoric because, you know, the idea of uh, suggesting that the generals were parrots, you know, that, you know, they were filled with empty rhetoric that, you know, had nothing to do with the reality of Colombia or, you know, they were never going to do anything good for the country. So that's, that's the beginning. And even before there's a, there's a the, when she does the whole series of Turbay, uh, she kind of reconnects back with oil paint because one of the changes that happened in her work at the time when she began to do the furniture pieces is that she had abandoned oil painting to, in order to take on latex and uh, take on latex and to also paint on, on metal. So she had abandoned all the traditional media. This was part of her, you know, sort of like uh, getting rid of all the traditional elements of painting and taking painting to another level, which had to do more with everyday life. But at, during the time of Turbay and then uh, Betancourt, she goes back to the medium of oil and rediscovers kind of the senselessness of color and the sheer, you know, delight of painting, you know, on oil. And she had always, even at that time, used very traditional media. I mean, just regular canvas, French colors, uh, French brushes. But she now puts them to use in a different way. She had for some years mined newspapers and such for images she would use in her paintings. But now in the years after 1985, there's there's a, a change. She begins to build canvases from multiple images in, in ways that suggest, uh, I think, as you write, that the violent events ricocheting throughout Colombian society were too layered and too complex to be addressed with a painting born from a single image. Is there a particularly good example of, of how she does that? Um, the first work, which is a transitional work, and it's very illustrative of that, is Camouflage Apocalypsis, or Apocalypsis Camouflado. It's a work that represents the taking over of a, of a house, of a peasant's house, by guerrilla groups. And so you have uh, sort of like the a demolished house, that's kind of falling on top of uh, a series of, of individuals. And you have the, uh, the paramilitary and the guerrillas attacking that house. And so each one of the figures is taken from different sources, some of them from the newspaper, some of them hard back to earlier, some of her earlier works, and some of them are other types of symbolism that she introduces. For instance, there's, a, uh, there's one collage element that has some deer, uh, represented and so she associates deer with death and uh, that's a kind of a collage it's a real element that's attached to the painting that carries you know that message of death so beginning uh, with that work then most of her uh, work after that and this is approximately 1986 or 87 after that date most of her images are composed images and that allows her to really bring in all the different actors you know of that you might consider to be the theater of violence this is a time and it's important to bear in mind that as i said before la violencia has been present in colombian society since the 1940s but in the 1980s it really became worse 
And the new factor in the 1980s is the presence of the drug dealers and the novels. And those became become also key elements, you know, of that conflict. So you don't only have, it's not just the conflict between the government and the guerrilla or the government and the paramilitary, which are also a, a very strong, various force. But then you also have these other added elements of the narcos, which are kind of mediating, you know, the relations between one and the other and complicating everything else. All of that, you know, begins to have a presence in, in her work. She turns from violence to mourning women in, in the 1990s um, in a series of intense art history referencing paintings. So she had been mining contemporary images, images contemporary to her life for, for 15 or so years, and she returns to art history for these works that address mourning women in the 1990s. Do you, is there a reason she returns to art history for those images, other than, of course, you know, there's a long Catholic tradition thereof? <laughs> it's important to clarify something, because she never really represents violence, you know, in a literal sense. And I think that's a really smart decision on her part. I mean, you're never going to see her representing soldiers uh, attacking the guerrillas or the guerrillas attacking soldiers or cadavers on a, on a dead field after a battle or, you know, things of that sort. She determines, she's very determined around that time, that what she wants to represent is grief. You know, she wants to find an image for grief. And that is a very difficult thing to do, because how do you represent grief without representing, you know, dead bodies, blood, you know, you know all sorts of dreary scenes. And for a contemporary artist wanting to, to do paint and is going against the grain of, you know, what all the other artists are doing in other media, it's an even more difficult uh, situation. So instead of representing the, the literal aspect of violence, uh, she turns to representing grief. And one of her most successful series is the one that you're alluding to, which is called Las Delicias, which is from the mid-90s. And it's a series where that, that refers to another of the many thousands of tragic incidents. In this case, it was a military base at a region called Las Delicias. And the guerrillas launched an attack and took over 100 young soldiers captive. They killed a number of them, and then about 60 of them uh, were left alive, but they were in captivity. And it gripped the imagination of Colombian people because there was all of this intense uncertainty as to what was going to happen to these to these soldiers. Were they going to kill them? Or, you know, was the government going to meet the demands? You know, all, all of that suspenseful aspects of the problem. And at that time, the mothers and, and wives of these soldiers, uh, for the first time, they went out and publicly demonstrated, you know, to bring attention to what had happened to their loved ones. And Beatrice, who, had, who was her son had been in the military, so I mean, she identified, you know, with those women and what they were going through. Um, she decided to paint these women, but again, she was not painting them, you know, in, with blood or with the dead. She represented them with their hands covering their faces, you know, which is, you know, an eternal image of grief, particularly motherly grief. I mean, she's making reference there to the Mater Dolorosa of Catholic iconography and Christian iconography. And, and therefore, she, you know, that's a symbol that appeals to anyone, you know, who sees uh, the work. It's, it's readily identifiable. And she is all those women. 
and you know because she identified w- with all of them and she goes as far and as far as uh, representing herself in the news uh, which is a very radical thing for her because she's a very modest person but she felt that it was the only way that she could you know unite herself to all these protests was to you know take off her clothes and appear to the world, you know, completely nude in protest, you know, to what had happened at that time. After these paintings of of grief, Gonzalez transitions into making paintings of people carrying the dead, either in sacks or in coffins or boxes. When when you when you point out she never paints violence directly, she she certainly paints its impacts. Why was she attracted to the imagery of the dead being, I'm not sure this is the right word, but relocated or or transited? Again, I don't think that's the right word either. <laughs> well, because that was that's an integral part of this tragedy that Colombians have been living on a day-to-day basis. It's important to point out that all of these images that I just described of the mothers weeping, I mean, those images, she continued to call them from newspapers and from magazines. I mean, these these are the images that circulated on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, Colombia has hundreds of newspapers. So this is something that was ubiquitous in the news media, in the newspapers, in magazines. She continues to come from them. And the images of the people carrying the bodies are part of a series which she begins shortly after Las Delicias, where she is representing what she calls the new jobs that come out of these tragedy of violence. You know, you have all these people, you have the searchers, which uh, there is one work in the exhibition, El Buscador, who are the, the people who search for the bodies with big poles and rivers, you know, because they throw the cadavers to the rivers. And the cadavers are all dressed up, you know, with a jacket and tie and everything. They're thrown to the rivers. The job of these people is to look, you know, search for them and identify them. And then they take them out and then there's other people who come and they're the ones who carry them. They're sort of like pallbearers. So this is all part of that reality and, and it's all over the press. I mean, we have in the exhibition all these images, you know, that are the source material for, for her work. And, and so she, you know, she takes them, she turns them into icons universal icons, and she repeats them in, serially, you know, in, in different works to bring attention to this reality. Yeah, there are lots of images of clippings from newspapers throughout the catalog, too. I found myself flipping back and forth. Yeah, that's, those are all the sources. I mean, those images are real. They're not, you know, they're not invented. I mean, she may modify them, of course, and transform them, transform them in one way or another, but they have a basis, you know, in reality. And of course, she she, transfer, she transforms the images, and she introduces all sorts of resources that I talk about in the catalog. For instance, she uses these little curtains, you know, to frame the images at the top, and so that converts all of these women or whoever is the character of the work into, you know, it makes them appear like they're characters in a theater of violence. Uh, she also incorporates resources from film montage. You know, she divides the plane of the of the picture in you know in three foreground and middle ground and, and background and you know that allows her to work in you know all these different facets of of the problem and then she also continues to draw from art history because some of the uh, of the figures you know recall Gauguin and his Tahitian women or other elements uh, other sources in art history so you know her process uh, continues uh, the same 
but she's adapting it to the gruesome reality of Colombia. Yeah, she installs a painting on on three walls so that it envelops the viewer in in, in one case, and in another, she radically changes the perspective so that as we're looking down on someone digging a grave, suddenly we're in a very different looking from a very different point of view than we are accustomed to. Yeah, she flies through modes of address. Mari Carmen Ramirez, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks to you. And I hope people can come to see the show in Houston. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.